Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a guest that is going to tell us a, a thing or two or many more about building and scaling companies. He's done it multiple times. The last one is definitely a, a big success. But I guess uh, without further ado, I want to welcome him to the show so that we can know more about it. So Sid Sibrandi, welcome to the show today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. So very exciting to have another fellow European. I'm also from Spain, so I know the drill of coming to a place like the U.S. But let's say let's do a little bit of a walk through memory lane here, Sid, with with your story. So originally from the Netherlands. So how was life growing up there? It was great. Um, although I didn't enjoy high school very much, but the Netherlands is a is a beautiful place. Um, I think they're one of the happiest citizens in Europe. Everything is well taken care of. Everything is efficient and organized, and it's a, it's a great place to be born. Really cool, really cool. So, so I believe that you got at some point into physics. So, what, what was, how did you develop the love for that? I really want to understand how things work, and I thought in high school that physics was the most interesting, and I was also pretty good at it. So, I figured I'd study that applied physics i realized during my first year there that it was uh, very much applied math during the first three years which was neither my interest nor my forte so i switched to management science so what was that switch like what was what was management science management science is kind of an mba uh, combined with uh, getting good at a few uh, uh, kind of engineering disciplines it was a lot of fun. I got to see a lot of different engineering disciplines, and I also really enjoyed the MBA part of the program. Got it. So then right out of that, I believe that um, you you actually, right when you were studying this, you created your first company. So tell us about this, um, this first company that you did. I believe it was IR Man. Yeah. It's, uh, at a certain point, I saw a, a fellow student, PhD student, who made an infrared receiver. And you could use it to skip to the next song on your computer. At that time, the only thing that played an MP3 song was a computer. And he uh, open sourced the design. And on his webpage, it said he wasn't selling it. But on the internal marketplace, he was. So I decided that make, that uh, that would be interesting to arbitrage. So I started buying these 
infrared receivers from him and selling them to the U.S. And we started off selling a printed circuit board if you just send us an envelope with dollar bills in it. And uh, we ended up uh, doing it a bit more professional with proper packaging and uh, and credit cards and all, all those things. So it was a really fun uh, fun way to start the first company. And what year was this? It was my first year of university, so 98. 98, got it. So why did you, de- why did you decide to leave the, the company seat? At a certain point, uh, with, uh, me and my two co-founders didn't agree about hiring uh, more people. Uh, so I want to hire more people, so I had to spend less time. They wanted to optimize for kind of free cash flow, uh, and they didn't want to hire any other people. So I guess, what was the takeaway for you in terms of co-founder relationships? Like what uh, I, did think, you learn? I think, what did you I think learn? it was a good, look, the, these things can happen. So uh, you could say in hindsight, you yeah, should be aligned on the goal. But I think for us, it wasn't, we didn't start this as a startup to become really big. Um, I started it with one co-founder, the PhD student, and the other co-founder came in on, equal terms to both of us later on. And I think um, that I think in, if I would do a company again, and I have done that, I wouldn't automatically make everyone an equal co-founder if they come in way later in the process. But it's, it's a very hard thing. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of kind of a sense of, of doing the right thing involved. Um, so I, I understand why you took the decision at the time and, and why we did that. But um, I think it's always really important if you start a company that um, you make sure uh, the shares, uh, everyone gets shares that are aligned with like their contribution to the company. And very important if you start a company to have vesting of your shares as well. Of course. I mean, if they're coming in later, there's less risk, you know, so uh, that should be also be represented on the cap table um, with their equity. So I guess the um, for the people that are listening, Sid, if uh, you know, based on on what you learn with Ironman and and with co-founder relationships, for those that are thinking about now meeting a co-founder or or that are at the earlier you know days of of the incubation process of the idea, what would be the top three tips when seeking a, a co-founder that you would give to to the folks that are listening? Yeah, um, make sure that. Well, first of all, I I think I got lucky with my co-founders. We had a good relationship. We started it in a good way and we ended it in a good way. And and that's very hard. So I got lucky with my co-founders and I think uh, we were always, uh, we we treated each other well. So I'm very happy with how that company started and and with how it ended. Um, I think when you're looking, when you're seeking out co-founders, make sure you try to kind of work with them well, maybe and that there's all kinds of implications there. I think the vesting is the most important part. So if you discover two weeks in that it's not working out, uh, that you can, that one of you can continue without kind of owning anything to the other person. Like they wouldn't be past their cliff. So just like you have a, uh, just like you do with options, have a one-year cliff and a four-year grant uh, that after the one year goes per month. And I think that's that takes away a lot of the co-founder problems I, I've seen uh, in other companies. Got it. 
especially you avoid the free riding, right? Because if someone lives with all the equity, then the people that, for example, need to invest, like VCs and stuff, they're going to be like, why am I now investing for just 50% remaining of the business, right? Exactly. Got it. And any other uh, recommendations that come to mind? No, I I think that uh, I'm, in the Netherlands, it's not uh, usual to grow really fast. So you're very much a product of your environment. And so in the Netherlands, this, this wasn't the goal of companies to kind of grow really fast. It was something I wanted, but I could totally see my co-founders not wanting it. And uh, if you do want to grow a company really fast, it's really beneficial to be somewhere like the Bay Area, where everyone just assumes by default that that is the goal. Not just your co-founder, but also your HR person and your lawyer and everybody else. Got it. Got it. So then you finally left. You left in good terms and then you graduated. So uh, what happened after you graduated? Yeah. So after graduation, I did a small stint at IBM for three months. It was IBM Extreme Blue. That was super cool. Uh, I also was interested in strategy consulting. I've done a couple of workshops. And my third option for my career was um, building a recreational submarine. I've seen an inventor with a submarine on a boat fair. So I made a balanced scorecard of all the different ways to take that decision. And one of the criteria was, is this a good story to tell in a bar? Um, so I showed my dad a uh, balanced scorecard and he said it was a ridiculous way to decide on your career, but he was very supportive in whatever I would decide. Um, I called the person that uh, was uh, was considering starting a company around the submarines, the investor. And uh, I said, look, you should really hire me because I, I have a job offer now from IBM and otherwise I'll start working there. And, uh, and we both don't want that. And uh, he said, okay. And he asked me for a wage and I, I told him a, a wage I wanted to earn and it was super reasonable. But he, uh, he said, I'll, I'll give you half of that, which was very unreasonable. But uh, he hadn't been in business for 14, 15 years and he hadn't taken into account inflation. So I was uh, living away from my parents for my, the entire time I studied. But then I have to move back to them in order to start, uh, start being an employee of this company. <laughs> <laughs> so how was that experience of now going out for dinners and having your father and mother looking at the watch when you came back home? Yeah, it's uh, they've they've been really good. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't a problem, uh, and they've been very supportive, and it was a lot of fun. So they're in the attic there. I, I built the first kind of onboard computer for the submarine, and I was having a lot of fun. Really cool. And and even though you were not the the co-founder of this business, you very much were uh, acting as one, like being um, uh, you know, one of the first employees, and and as you were saying, developing you know the first uh, prototypes for this. So. So what, what ended up happening with uh, U-Boat? Yeah, so I was the first full-time person to work on it. I hired the eventual general manager, and uh, it was a very interesting and long ride, and I can fill the entire podcast with stories. But uh, after five years, I left. Uh, at that point, they were producing the most submarines in the world, and they still are. It's called U-Boat Works. And, uh, for example, if you go on a cruise ship, they will uh, likely, if they have a submarine, it's likely from U-Boat uh, Works. I'm very proud of, of kind of that still continuing. So what was your biggest lesson from this journey? Because it was four years. Well, there were so, so many lessons. Uh, you have to pick one. But um, the reason I left is that I wanted a growing company. So I wasn't 
although it was very interesting work, we were at 15 people and grown with a couple of people a year. And I very much discovered that I like the period of rapid growth more. So um, that was a lesson I took away. So then if you like the rapid growth, what happened? What, what led you into the public uh, environment with, with, with the next uh, uh, chapter? Yeah, I did a stint at uh, the government as a civil servant. And this was kind of a, a time-boxed thing. So it was for a limited time. It was also part-time. So I, I think it was for half about half my time. And it was an innovation project. So I get to run a couple of projects as an architect, including kind of version control for law and a couple of other things. So um, it was very interesting. And, and maybe I should clarify a bit. It's not so much growth that I like, it's interestingness. I want to do interesting things. And I think in a growing company, there's continually new problems and new challenges and new things to learn. So I think that makes it a good fit. But this project was... Um, Although it was with the with the government, it was extremely interesting and uh, was kind of interesting to see that side of like and that the type of organization as well. And uh, it was uh, I learned a lot. And uh, when when I didn't learn a lot anymore, it was also time to move on. So I, I had a lot of fun there. So would you agree with the statement that people say that that typically this type of um, of environments they they move too slow? Is that right? Well, too slow would be um, saying that there's something wrong. Yeah, they move slow for sure, and I, I'm not a big fan of that. I like to move fast; <laughs> it's more interesting, right? But what we judge our government on is that they don't make mistakes yeah. and that they weigh the the interest of all the constituents correctly. They did that, um, so I'm not sure how to do that how to weigh all these all these different inputs and how to make fewer mistakes without slowing down yeah. i think that's really hard so the fact that they're slow it's it's not something that you can fix in isolation if you want to fix that you also have to accept more mistakes uh yeah so I've, i i wouldn't say they're too slow therefore they're definitely slow and they're a lot slower than is interesting for me. So definitely not the um, not the not the type of mindset of uh, of a Mark Zuckerberg of uh, move fast and break things because they they don't yeah. want to break things. So I, I get that. They don't want to break things, and and that might be good. Like you don't want your government to break. <laughs> for sure, for sure. So see the um, your your second startup then you know comes as the as the next chapter app appeal. So um, so how did you incubate this idea and and how did you come or how did you bring this to life? What happened there? Yeah, it was with uh, a friend, and the friend had a, um, an idea for uh, an app store for web applications. We saw the rise of the app store for the iPhone, and uh, we thought, hey, look, there's going to be this huge category of web applications. People will need discovery for all those applications as well, for all the SaaS, what we now know as SaaS applications. We should become a great site to uh, compare those. Uh, so we started that, but I think what happened is that Google kind of became the way you find and discover web applications. And there's some some great companies out there now, uh, like G2 Crowd, uh, who do a great job. But uh, we we 
the market was much smaller than we thought, and we we didn't do a good enough job of of winning the rest of the market. Got it. So then, did you guys uh, raise any money for for this company, or or it was just fully bootstrapped? How how was that? It was fully bootstrapped, and we ended up selling for a small amount to one of our competitors. Got it. So bootstrapping versus uh, raising capital, which one would you go about if you had to start another company? Yeah, I would say bootstrap for as long as you can. Like expect to lose all your money. Uh, but as long as you can pay for it yourself, it's way less complex. Um, so I did that with uh, my last company with, with GitLab. I bootstrapped it for a couple of years with $100,000 that I had. Harvested it from my previous adventures. And I doubled that by speculating in Bitcoin. And uh, I think that was a, a great, great way to start it because it it meant that we could invest for a long time in improving the product without a lot of pressure to um, to immediately monetize it. And for open source, open source tends to be a great business model, but it tends to take a bit longer than proprietary software. So I think in hindsight, that was... Uh, it was great that we had a bit of extra time. So let's talk about GitLab then. At what point do you decide to to really put an end to App Appeal and you know start to think about what's going to be next and and how did GitLab come about? Yeah, I think App Appeal we yeah, when it wasn't working out we we stopped it, and I think there was a period in between where I was just consulting as a Ruby on Rails consultant. So I wasn't I wasn't full time looking for a new thing. I was just browsing Hacker News and I saw this GitLab project and I thought, wow, it makes so much sense that something you collaborate with is also something you can contribute to. Uh, I was using GitHub at the time and that was the only piece of proprietary software, like non-open source software that I used in my day-to-day as a developer. So I thought it makes a lot of sense that of all the things, your collaboration software is also open source. Got it. And and just really quickly, you said, that App Appeal, you, you mentioned that at what point you really saw that it was not working. And, and then you went into consulting, you saw, you know, uh, you know the, the creation of GitLab on Hacker News, and that really sparked the interest on you. But I guess before we continue diving deeper um, to really understand more of the story behind GitLab, I'd like to know, and perhaps, you know, the listeners are wondering, at what point do you decide it's time to pull the plug from App Appeal? Yeah, I must say I don't remember exactly. I think uh, um, I think you kind of yeah. Oh, I think revenue was stagnating. I think that's the primary reason. Kind of people stop stop stop. If it's no longer growing, then it's no longer a startup. Then you just you go try to execute ideas, and first you have your your most pl- you start with the most plausible ideas. And you go work down that list, and at a certain point, there are very implausible ideas that you're working on, and you just decide, okay, this is this is it's likely we can turn this around. We cannot get to a high growth rate anymore, and then it's time to stop because at the current level, it's not something we want to dedicate our careers to any longer. Got it. So then, let's fast forward here. Uh, Hacker News, you see, you have your first encounter with GitLab. What was the next step? What happened? I thought this makes so much sense. Um, And at that point, you can only run GitLab yourself, self-managed. 
And I thought, well, SaaS is the futures, Salesforce, etc. So I'm going to start GitLab.com. So I did a, a Show Hacker News article where I said, look, I'm going to start GitLab.com. Are people interested? If so, sign up here. And I got a couple of hundred people that, uh, that signed up. It hit the homepage. I was super excited. And I sent an email to the creator of GitLab, to Dimitri, like, hey, um, you don't know me, but I'm starting this GitLab.com without you. I hope that's okay with you. And he sent a very nice email back where he said, yeah, that's totally fine. Um, I'm, I'm totally cool with you starting this without me. Uh, it's open source. I hope you make it more popular. Thank you very much. Wow. So then, so then what happened after that? Well, I tried uh, GitLab.com for a year. But it turns out that the majority of GitLab usage was with people self-managed. Uh, GitLab at the time um, was uh, was used by like big companies um, that wanted to kind of host everything themselves. And they were asking me for new features because I was very visible because I was running GitLab.com. They asked me, but I didn't, I didn't have a lot of GitLab programming expertise. Uh, and at the same time, I, at that year, uh, Dimitri sent out a tweet. Um, I want to work on GitLab full time. So I emailed him, like, hey, I'm that person from a year ago. I saw your tweet. Can I can I pay you to add more features to GitLab? And we uh, agreed on a a monthly wage. And uh, I went to the local Western Union where I said I want to wire some money to the Ukraine. And they asked me, Do you know this person? Or is this someone you know via the internet? Because there were lots of scams going on from the Ukraine at that point. Uh, I figured I knew him enough and made the wire, and we were in business. So then, what were some of so then so then at that point was he an employee, a co-founder, or what was the relationship? Yeah, he was. Uh, he was a co-founder. Got it. Got it. So then, finally, you know, the founding team is is getting more shape. So then, what were some of the early days like? See. So it was me in the Netherlands, and then Martin in the Serbia, and then Dimitri in the Ukraine. We didn't really have a feel for how we looked. We didn't have a, we didn't do video calling. We Dimitri was even reluctant to send a picture of himself. I applied some pressure at some point. He sent one with uh, sunglasses on. <laughs> but uh, but we were able to deliver the features that people wanted. Uh, so. Uh, it kept growing, and uh, I, uh, we were able to generate a bit of income, able to hire a few more people. So between 2012 and uh, uh, 2014, we grew to uh, nine people working on, the, on that project. And then the next big change came when we uh, joined Y Combinator. So how was that process for you guys like? So we, uh, we applied. We didn't know anybody in Silicon Valley, so we didn't have any references or anything else. Nobody vouched for us. Just an application. Uh, but we had a lot of users of our product, and uh, they were intrigued. I was uh, able to fly out. Dimitri couldn't make it because he couldn't get a visa in time, which is uh, not something they particularly like. But um, the, we managed to, uh, to get into the program and we flew the entire company out for three months to uh, to all kind of be able to participate. Um, although only the founders are invited to Y Combinator, it was kind of fun getting home every after every event and kind of explaining to the rest of the company 
um, what we learned. So I guess from 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 the three months at Y Combinator, what was like a wow moment for you? Like, wow, this is how they do it here. Yeah, the wow, wow moment happened after two weeks. Um, every two weeks you have a, a talk with your mentors and there's a couple of people kind of in, in your particular group. And we went uh, company by company. And after me was Liz Wessels, uh, what's now called Way Up. And they did so much more than us in those two weeks that we had a wild moment. Like, we're, we're really not cutting it. And we drove back in a way too big car that fit the entire company. But that was Dimitri and me. And uh, we said, look, we got to start going faster. So we took kind of the roadmap we have for the next three months. And we said, okay, what of this can we fit in the next two weeks? And just cut scope in order to make it fit and do as much as possible, do all these things that we think will make a difference. And we started working on that. And uh, that's where our value of iteration came from, which means reduce scope and ship it way, way sooner than you think was ever possible so that you have time to iterate and improve it over time. And that worked really well and that became a core company value. So that's the most important uh, takeaway from that program. And I guess if if we had to look, let's say, as um, Y Combinator as, let's say, plastic surgery, where you see the pictures of the before and after, what would you say was the before picture of GitLab and the after picture of GitLab post uh, Y Combinator? Yeah, I think a couple of things changed. So the first thing is uh, the speed which we operated. Uh, the second thing was our ambition level. They told us uh, day one, there, there's 113 companies here. Three of you will be a billion-dollar-plus company. If we knew what free, there would be free companies here. Uh, so it's very clear, like, you come to Silicon Valley to s start a big company, not a small one. And the third thing is that we learned a lot. We were both technical co-founders. We learned about, a lot about sales and marketing and uh, presentations, fundraising that otherwise would have been very time-consuming to uh, to learn. So did you guys, uh, right after the program, make the, made the decision of staying in the Bay Area, or, or how, did you how, how did you finally stay there? Yeah, uh, after the program, I decided to stay in San Francisco for a month to do fundraising. And uh, after two weeks, we already had our seat round uh, allocated. So uh, I asked our coach, what should we do? He asked, well, is there, is there interest in an A? And he said, I said, yeah, for sure. He said, well, lots of companies fail because they don't raise an A. So go, if you can, go do it. So I raised an A. And um, if you do that, then there's kind of a commitment to stay in the Bay Area. Uh, and they want to invest in local companies. So with that came my um, commitment to I live here and I love it here. There's there's so many very talented people with a lot of ambition uh, being able to realize that it's uh, I never want to leave. Got it. I mean, and what was it like for you? I mean, you're from Europe and then all of a sudden you see, you know, yourself doing a seat round where Ashton Kutcher is investing, the guy that you see in the movies. Yeah, it was unreal. Uh, that all happened on demo day. So on demo day, I met Michael Arrington. I met Ron Conway and Aston Kutcher. And it is like living in a movie. Like I've only 
read like TechCrunch back at home and read about all these people and there they are in the, in the flesh and they're interested in talking about your company. It, it was a very much an unreal experience. So how long did it take from that demo day until you finally closed the, the seat round in the bank? Um, I think we, like, when do you close a seat round? It's kind of, you have two steps. You've, you sign the safe, which happened kind of immediately. So that was kind of two weeks. Although I think technically in those two weeks, we were allocated 80% and we had more than enough interest for the last 20% and we took a bit of extra time. But those safes were signed after two weeks. The money in the bank comes only when you, um, or that then comes money in the bank and the, the, the equity gets distributed when you do your A round. Um, but the money in the bank was, yeah, days, days, days after signing. So in those two weeks, basically. Got it. Because ultimately the save is, is a form of debt and that debt is going to convert in, in equity, which you guys did the round in. 2015. So, so I guess before we talk about the A round, I mean, obviously at this seat round, the business model was coming together. The you know these folks were investing because they got it. So, what was the business model then of GitLab so that people listening get it? Yeah, a small point about the safe, just for for other people listening. Um, a safe kind of works very much like convertible debt, but it's technically not debt, which helps, for example, in California, in order to. Um, hand out debt in, the, in a commercial way, there's, there's regulation. So uh, although it's similar, uh, the economics are similar to a convertible note, uh, it is not a convertible note, uh, which, uh, which is kind of handy in a, in a couple of different ways. So I definitely um, recommend the safe process. Yes. And more flexible too. You don't have the maturity date, you know, especially with you have, when you have people that are not very well aligned, then they can ask you for the money back with the interest. And obviously for a cash-strapped uh, business, you know, that could be the, the death, right? Uh, and they can use that as leverage. I've, I've seen many businesses closing down because of them not being able to repay the, the debt. So so I agree with you. I think that the save is a great uh, method. So, um, so, yeah, so let's talk about the business model of GitLab then uh, at, at the seed stage. What was, what was that? business model or what has evolved the business model to be so that people listening understand yeah um the business model has always been to add features on top of the open source version and charge for those features with a per user fee so you pay per user uh, per year uh, to uh, use these additional features and how it's evolved over time is that we added more tiers. So we started with uh, a tier, our lowest tier, and then we introduced new tiers at higher price levels as we added more features. And the hard thing was trying to figure out kind of how do you differentiate these tiers? Um, one way that people differentiate them is by the size of the companies buying them. But we found that wasn't a great way and what worked really well for us is what we call buyer-based open core, where all the features that are aimed at individual contributors are in our open source version. And then features aimed at managers are in our lowest price version. Features aimed at directors are in our mid tier. And features aimed at executives, for example, compliance and governance are in our highest price tier. And it turns out that if the person you sell to is higher up in the organization, 
it's harder to reach them. So you have to spend more on sales and marketing. Um, they're less likely to contribute back to your product, um, but they're also, they have more budget uh, to, pay for, to pay for things. Got it, got it. And for the company, the seed, how much capital have you guys raised today? 158 million. 158 million. And I've seen reportedly over a billion dollar valuation. So really impressive. So so I guess uh, what were some of the expectations that you have seen from financing milestone to financing milestone from, from some of those incredible investors that you have onboarded? Yeah, I think your seed round, you you tend to raise on the team if you're in Silicon Valley. Uh, but because our team was not very impressive, uh, we raised it on our users, our customers. Um, the A round, you tend to raise on the product you've developed. And then the B round and every later round is uh, financial metrics. And it's very much like, what is your margin? What is your net retention? How fast are you adding new customers? Um, and try to, try to kind of uh, paint that picture. And some of the investors that you have, I mean, impressive. Cosla Ventures, Google Ventures, August Capital, I mean, even Iconic Capital, which is the vehicle, uh, you know, of Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Jack Dorsey, and Mark Andreessen, and so forth. So how, how I, guess, I guess, first and foremost, how did you meet these investors? And what, perhaps for the people that are listening, what would you say is the most effective method to get in front of these kind of people? Yeah. Um... The most effective way is to go to Y Combinator. It's amazing how they set you up for success there. Um, so all of our, I think all of our seed investors were kind of uh, interested because we came out of that program. And then uh, Kosla was a seed investor. They did half of our uh, seed round. And then they were also interested in doing, investing more. So they did RA. Um, I think in the B round, we we kind of reached out to the people that have shown interest before, and we um, so there was a lot of inbound interest. I think we also uh, we augmented that with people we we were interested in ourselves. We ran a process, and both the C and the D round were kind of proactive. Where um, we weren't particularly interested in fundraising at that moment, but um, we are, there was a strong interest and we decided to take the money as it, as it, as the opportunity was there. And typically for, for additional introductions and, and really helping in opening those doors to build meaningful relationships with other, uh, let's say investors, what would you say was, was more effective for you? And I know that you touched on, on Y Combinator, but would you say that typically the best introductions come from founders or from existing investors? I think existing investors is, is really, really great. So I think because they've seen the business for some time, um, they are a great way to get introductions. Basically, the problem of venture investing is that you, what they're really scared of, you invest and then it turns out different than what you thought it was. And to prevent that, you want to kind of see progress over time. So you want to invest in a line, not a dot. And if it's an existing investor, they can kind of vouch for like, look, I've been here for three board meetings and like there's, 
there's no no surprise stuff there's they they do what they say they can they meet plans and if there's bad news we hear it immediately like that is so important that a new investor believes that's the case because they hate to invest in a company and then in the first board meeting there's like five surprises got it absolutely and one thing that i've seen as well here is that in the past couple of years you guys have been very active when it comes to to acquisitions on the on the buy side right with Gitter in 2017 with the gymnasium in 2018 so so how do you guys think about acquisitions yeah that's a great question um, there's more detail in our acquisition offer page, but the gist of it is we'd like to acquire um, more teams that have uh, built a product before that is kind of on our roadmap. So if you go to our homepage, there's a lot of things that aren't in GitLab today that we, we, we still want to add to GitLab. So if uh, a team has built that before, we'd love to acquire them. And then preferably a team that made a great product but that didn't get distribution because we're going to shut the their existing product down gitlab is a single application for the entire devops life cycle so they will have to re-implement the product in gitlab and that's much easier if there wasn't a lot of sales yet if there aren't a lot of customers yet you won't have disappointed customers you don't have to maintain it very long plus it's more affordable for us to acquire the company uh, for an example is Gymnasium, an amazing product, but there wasn't a lot of revenue. And they've been able to kind of build out the security vision of GitLab really, really rapidly. Um, so if if there's people that, that do like um, threat detection or behavioral analytics or vulnerability management or release governance or systems testing or any of these things on the on the homepage, we have an acquisition offer page and it includes a calculator. You can exec you can calculate how much we'll offer. Um, it's not a lot, it's up to a million dollars. Uh, but it's it's a great exit if if because for those teams that don't have a lot of sales, uh, the other option is frequently closing down. Yeah. Aqua hires for sure a good a good method, I would say, to build a team faster and and especially for for the folks that are listening, I'm sure that we have a lot of business people that are thinking about, hey, how do I, you know, recruit my my first, you know, top tier engineers, and and how do I find those that are, you know, worth it? So I guess I guess based on what you've seen, you know, you've probably dealt with a lot of engineers. What would you say are the, let's say, and this is kind of like an open ended question, but perhaps you know we can address this one for whoever is listening that is dealing with this. What would you say are the top three traits that they should be looking in a rockstar engineer yeah I, I wouldn't hire rock stars they they show up late and they tend to be high <laughs> but okay but um we we look for a couple of things like first of all you have to like understand code like reason about it well have a have a feeling for what what good code looks like second you have to be able to kind of ship to to iterate uh in gitlab we on average, we hope that people make like 10 improvements to the code every month that they get out the, uh, the door. Uh, you, you have to uh, be able to collaborate well to uh, kind of give and uh, review someone else's code and, and make sure that you give, you help them uh, make their code better and, and become a better developer. It's really hard to assess engineers. I think Paul Graham has a great essay in which he says, 
look, we don't know who the top coder in the world is because the only way to assess someone is to have worked with them for a while. And there's some truth to that. Um, I think it's uh, a popular proxy nowadays is have people contributed to open source code because that's a visible thing. And if the most open source projects are pretty critical of what code they accept. So if they're able to get their code in, apparently it's of a high enough quality to meet that bar. But it's a, it's a hard process. And the, the best thing is to like start out with one great coder who can then assess the people coming in. Of course, the hard thing is finding that first person. Uh, so I suggest you be generous with your equity if you don't have a technical co-founder yet. Got it. So do you think that maybe like doing code challenges or code tests might be a good way to, to see, you know, and to measure the quality of that engineer? Yes, for sure. Got it. And how, how, how big is, uh, is GitLab today? It's, uh, the, so the open source project has gotten more than 2,000 contributions from people outside GitLab, the company. GitLab, the company, is 700 people in more than 50 countries all around the world. We're an all-remote company, so we don't have any shared offices. Wow. So, so there's, you guys don't embrace the, um, the FaceTime mentality that a lot of corporations do. So, so how does, so tell us about this culture. How, how did you guys build this up and, and what kind of guidelines do you follow or, or, or what does it look like to, to be part of a corporation that doesn't really have that FaceTime mentality? Yeah. So what we say is we don't do in person. Uh, we do very much encourage people to, um, to look each other in the face. I think uh, we're, Although we started with Dimitri refusing to send a picture of himself, uh, we we try to have meetings with webcams on. Even if you're doing something else, that's fine. Um, but we do believe there's something to seeing the other person. And uh, for example, uh, every day we have a uh, a company call, and and it's a break. It's 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 a thing you do um, with uh, a limited set of people. Uh, I think there's twenty in our group, and we just hang out. Today, we, we talked a bit about movies and magazines, and it turns out someone subscribes to the Hollywood Reporter, so it was interesting to hear from her why, why she did that and what she found interesting. But we just uh, chat, chat about things. So we very much believe that our company is more than just uh, hey, your work. It's also the, the social interaction, and we, we, we have a lot of ways in which we facilitate that inside the company. Got it. So the... So in a future seat where the vision of GitLab is fully realized, what does that look like? So um, do you mean regarding our product or regarding uh, all remote? The vision, the, vision, the vision that you have for GitLab. Yeah. What does it look like when it's fully implemented and realized? Yeah, we think it should be way easier to create and, and maintain software. Today, if you want to do what, what's called DevOps, develop and operate your software. You need to stitch together more than 10 tools, sometimes even 30 different tools in order to, um, in order to uh, make software. That has to become easier. And not only does it have to become easier, you want to get down your cycle time. And the cycle time is like the time between deciding to do something and having that out there. And at GitLab, we... Because it's a single application, it helps people to not take so long to hand it over from 
from different DevOps tools to a different DevOps tool. And uh, we want to make sure that GitLab becomes uh, best in class in all the different kind of, for all the different products it replaces. So I ho we hope in a couple of years, um, I just made a merge request yesterday, uh, 28, November 18, 2023. We hope to be at $500 million of ARR. And we hope that we have all those different parts of GitLab that are already there, that those are loved by customers because they're the best in the business. I love it. I love it. And I guess uh, talking from a strategic level, and, and obviously you are in this world of engineers and obviously great problem solvers. When you're thinking about a problem that it is you know, more as a strategic level, right? Um, how do you go about solving it? Yeah, I do what I do for other problems as well. Write down, write things down, uh, try to think think through it, and then share that with others and have them fed it. So that strategy that I talked about, I, I wrote it up um, yesterday, and uh, today I announced it on our company call. Already received some comments, and over the next couple of days, uh, people will comment more. We'll we'll address those comments, and and then we'll put it live and we'll have something to um we'll have a next goal beyond kind of our plans to become a public company uh, and next year very cool and and one question that i always ask the guests that participate on the on the show is if you had you know now this is you know you've done you know all these companies with this uh, last one with gitlab i mean it's it's incredible the the amount of experiences and, and lessons learned that you have been able to 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 to, to really achieve and and and, and get, uh, I guess if you had the opportunity to go back in time and and have a chat with your younger self, Sid, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before launching a business, and why? <laughs> I think uh, I would, uh, if if I was available at the time, I would read our handbook. So we, we try to make sure that um, everything we learn, we write down. And by now, the GitLab handbook is over 3,000 pages. And I'm very proud that it's open and it's even Creative Commons. So people can just copy whatever part they want from that handbook and kind of benefit from all the things we learned already. And I think that's, if you're starting a company today, I, and it's a startup, uh, and it's it's focused on technology, I uh, or it's using technology. I really recommend you have a have a look at that. Uh, that's that's all the lessons we've learned so far. And just out of curiosity, I mean, we were talking about Hacker News before on how things started. If we were to put the three thousand pages on Hacker News, which page would you say would get the most amount of votes and comments? <laughs> Oh, Hacker News lost controversy. So, I'm, I'm, <laughs> uh, so far, the most controversy uh, has been uh, us paying local rates. So we pay our people depending on like the market rate in uh, where they live. So I think that that will probably get the most votes. Um, but I think for uh, I'm I'm also a student of business, so I like our leadership page. Uh, so you can Google GitLab leadership, or you can. Google GitLab, why we pay local rates, uh, depending on what your interest is. Got it, got it. 
Cool. Well, Sid, it has been a pleasure. So uh, just out of curiosity, you know, probably the people that are listening are thinking like, hey, how do I get in touch uh, uh, with, uh, with Sid? So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah, the best way is uh, Twitter. My DMs are open. Okay, and your Twitter handle is? Sitesis, S-Y-T-S-E-S. Amazing. Cool. Well, Sid, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Great. Thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.